impact your heart in whatever way he wants to do. So uh, we're in for a treat. Who knows that? Come on. We're in for a treat. Yeah. Who's been looking forward to this? I've been looking forward to this since uh, December last year. And when God said to me, bring, da- uh, bring down Pastor Mike, that was just one of those words that came. And uh, just the, the way it's happened, here we are at the start of May. And uh, we've got, we got this awesome minister of God that's going to be here with us sharing over the weekend. Uh, we just want to give God glory for that. I went to, just came back from dinner with Mike and uh, first time we've really met face to face. We've been talking over Skype and over Facebook and all sorts of things. I mean, watching what he's been doing. This guy travels, the, like his travel itinerary is crazy. And here he is in the middle of nowhere, little town called Griffith. He had to strap himself into a Rex bullet today to come down here. And a first time experience, I'm sure, eh? The old Rex. I shot him a message this morning. I just said, enjoy Rex, eh? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think, I think he was enlightened, which is awesome. But you know, uh, you know, it's just one of these things. The Lord said to me, let's expose the people of the church to an, a dynamic evangelist. And the testimony of this guy is going to just, I, I pray, is just going to um, break down whatever concept that you have of God. Because see, God's for for the lost he's for the broken he's he wants us to go into the highways and byways of our community and he wants us to to reach not just the highest of highs but he wants us to reach the lowest of lows and when you hear where this man's come from he's come from the lowest of lows and now look at him he's he's jet setting across the globe giving the message of hope to so many people and i'm just really looking forward to the message tonight just it's not a message it's a testimony testimony the goodness of God and what he's done we just sung about we've got a good good father and here we have an opportunity to hear of what God in his goodness has done that he would take a a wretch like me who is worthy of nothing but judgment and death and he would change that upon the life of his son and he would place what I deserve upon his son and he would place the very riches and royalty of his son and he would put it upon me see that's the hope of the gospel it's the hope of what he's doing. And I'm not going to keep going because I will if you want. I'm just going to, how about we just put our hands together for Pastor Mike as he comes and shares. Thanks, man. It's so good to have you here. All this happening, can everybody hear me? Very cool. Well, it is very good to be here. I have to say that... Um, you know, when, when I found well, Jesus, really, he found me. I wasn't looking for him. He found me. And, um, and, and I, uh, I said, when I encountered, when I encountered a, a living God, when I encountered the touch from heaven, well, you see, people couldn't preach to me. I'm, uh, I'm going to share a bit about this in a minute. But, but like, I, I, was, I was not one that you would preach to. I would get the tracks that evangelists used to I used to burn them and I'd, I'd, I'd go up and beat up these evangelists on the street you know like it was like like the apostle Paul you know just going out killing Christians and you know just I, I was a, a bad person you know I was a I was a nasty person at the end of my my uh, my life but in out there in the world but I, I encountered this this loving living God and I said, I'll go wherever you want me to go, God. And, uh, and, and God has literally taken me all over the world. Like, He's taken my test. I've, I have preached to 
churches full of middle-class Chinese business people in Malaysia, the largest church in Kuala Lumpur. Here I am, this ex-drug dealer, standover man from Australia, standing up here. And the very first thing I did when I got up behind the pulpit is I just started to laugh. Because I thought, this is just God showing off. It is. To take a wretch like me, that old Amazing Grace song, he, he saved a wretch like me. And, uh, and, and, and literally, he's just showing off. I'm a trophy of grace. I'm, 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 I'm his masterpiece. Have I got it all together? No. Have, have I worked out this whole thing about Christianity? No. But one thing, I can't stop. I can't stop while, and, and Pastor Steve and I were talking about it tonight, while, you know, there's, there's approximately about 1.1 million people in Australia that declare themselves as Christians. What that says to me is that 18.9 million are going to a Christless eternity in hell. So, and, and, and God wants to use people like us. I See, my, my, um, my impression of, of Christians where they were all these like little straighty 180s with thick Coke bottle glasses and um, with their pants pulled up around their armpits and even pocket protectors. And I just thought, you know, that, that's what Christians were, you know what I mean? They carried their big Bible to church and And I just thought, well, you know, that, why would I? It's, it, I don't fit in that. I don't fit in it. I, I'd go to church and I'd just think, I don't fit. I don't, that's, that's not where I fit. But, but no one ever told me that most of the Bible was written by murderers. Hello? Moses was a murderer. Moses had an anger problem. Moses couldn't even speak right. Yet God had him deliver all of his people out of Egypt and write the first five books of the Bible. Paul, murderer. What about Rahab the prostitute? The great, great, great grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would God slot in a prostitute into the lineage of Jesus? Just to show that he's not a respecter of persons. And he loves everybody. And God will use people who, who are hungry for him. Who realize that there's nothing else in the world has to offer. And, and I, just, I just said, God, I've got, I got nothing. Like there is, there is nothing for me. Like I've tasted everything that the world has to offer. And I can tell you right now, there's no high like the most high. There is no high like the most high. There is no feeling that drugs or alcohol or sex or pornography can give you that even comes close to eclipsing the presence of His Holy Spirit. So I'm going to share my story a bit tonight. 
um, so that you get a bit of context as to, as to what's happening. And then I'll share about what God's doing in my life now. But um, I, I grew up, in, I didn't grow up in, in your average, like sort of uh, stereotype broken family. You know what I mean? Like you would think uh, if, if, if a person was a, became a drug addict or a drug dealer or something, they, they must come from a broken family. They must have, you know, they, they, their father must have been an alcoholic. Their mother must have been an alcoholic. Something must have happened. They must have been grown up in poverty or whatever. And that, that stereotype. But I actually grew up in a good family. I, my, my parents used to call themselves Christians, but they would, you know, bring out the tarot cards and things and astrology and all sorts of other things. And I, I was a little confused with it all. And we never went to church except on the odd occasion. But, um, but as I grew up, my, my sister became, she was very attractive. And my sister started going to modeling and she she became the original decore girl there was this ad used to go around i'm showing my age a little bit now there was this ad called the, yeah that's right it used to go duh 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 decore duh duh decore duh. and there was this blonde girl at the end used to swoosh her hair all the way around that was my sister she was the decore girl and so what we would get we would get these big life-size posters sent to our house um, of her and and with the decor thing and it was like and and you know my mum and dad they were so proud of her you know I, you can never you know fault mum and dad and what they wanted to do they were so proud of my sister they would put these big posters up in our house and there'd be this big poster of my sister and there'd be this little poster stamp size picture of me on the mantelpiece and uh, and uh and then, you know, as time went on, she became more and more successful. And, um, and she, she traveled the world and really became a supermodel and then went into acting. And um, she's, she's still a successful actress today. She's, she's now, she's just finished a, a, um, a Netflix uh, series called Bloodline, um, where she's the main actress in Bloodline, um, leading female role. She, um, she was in Bridget Jones' Diary, Edge of Reason, Ladder 49 with John Travolta. She was in, um, she's been in a bunch of movies. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, I, I couldn't compete with that kind of, like, success in our household. And, and beauty was always the thing, you know, like, and, and so people would come and they'd, like, see a picture of me and they'd see a picture of her and they'd go, what happened to you? And so I just thought, you know, like, so I, I started, I, I think food was my first addiction. And, uh, and I just started to sort of, you know, just, I thought, well, you know, I was going to be fat. Okay. And, uh, and so I became the little fat chubby kid at school that used to get picked on and bullied and stuff. And, and, um, and my mum's answer to that was to put me in karate lessons. And so I'd, I, uh, you know, I come home from school one day and I punched a hole in the wall and, you know, and then I ended up doing karate. And how many know that after I started doing karate, mum had a new problem now? So, but I used to answer every problem with my fists then. 
and I became really good at karate and I, I, like it, it became like a religion to me, martial arts. Just study all different martial arts. Um, by the time I, I had uh, reached the age of 22, just fast tracking a little bit, I'd done an apprenticeship as a chef because I like food. Makes sense. And so I'd done, Father Andrew, it's so good to see you. It's my friend. We travel down on the on the plane. So I didn't mean to embarrass you. I just, <laughs> it's really, I was excited. Um, so, so we, um, yeah, what happened? Hang on, let me, where was I? Okay, right, that's where I was. So I was a little fat kid. used to get bullied and picked on at school. And, um, and, and I came home one day and, you know, and mum decided to put me in karate lessons. And I did an apprenticeship as a chef. So by the time, by the age I was 22, I was paying off my own house. I was a sensei in a karate school and I was a uh, qualified chef and I, I wasn't happy. I didn't know what it was. I was always attracted to the bad side of life. Like I used to live in, in, the, in the like sort of upper class neighborhood, but I would go and hang out with my mates over in the, the slums. And uh, I was just, if there was a room full of people, I was always attracted to the baddest one in the room. I don't know what, what it was. It was just like, I wanted to be bad. I wanted to be rebellious. I, I would always push the envelope on everything. Me and my mates, when we first got our cars, we used to do crazy stuff, stealing cars and all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and, um, and I would be, always be the one that would push the envelope a little bit further. Like we'd be locked up in the back of a police car and I'd be provoking the cops in the front seat and they'd go, shh, you're getting into, it's into more trouble. Shh, stop, stop, stop. But I'd always push it that little bit further. I was, always, I was an extremist by nature. And I always thought there was just something wrong with me, you know. There's something, because people would say, what's wrong with you? Teachers would say, what's wrong with you? Cops would say, what's wrong with you? Why do you have to just push everything to the limits and beyond the limits? But it was just who I was. If I was going to do it, I was going to do it to the nth degree. And so I did that. I did that with karate, became very good at that. And, um, and, and life on the outside seemed to be going pretty smooth, but on the inside, I was missing something. And one night, I was introduced to amphetamines to speed by a karate sensei everybody say influence you see God has a plan for your life and the devil has a plan for your life it is as simple as that most of the time whatever our plan for our life kind of falls into one of those two categories Bible says that wide is the road that leads to destruction that everybody's taken. Narrow is the road that leads to life that very few take it. And I was heading down the wide road and this sensei, because I was so respected him, he, he came around and introduced me to speed and, he said, and I said, look man, I'm not into drugs. I'm certainly not into needles. Um, but... Um, I'll, I'll give it a crack. And, uh, and he injected uh, a gram of speed into 
my arm that night. It was first real drug that I'd really enjoyed. See, I tried smoking pot. I didn't really like pot. It made me feel paranoid. I would, I would be sitting there in a group of people and, 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 and I, I'd smoke pot and everybody else seemed to be having a good time, but I'd be sitting there and there'd be little demons speaking in my ears going, he's out to get you. He's, they're plotting against you. That's what's going to happen. This is going to happen. That's gonna... And, and I'd just spin right out and I'd, 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 I'd try and sneak out of the room, go to the bathroom. I remember one time I, I, I actually crawled out the bathroom window of this guy's place because I was all paranoid and stoned and then I jumped in my car I'm heading up the highway and I felt like my, my car was about this big on, on the highway and I was like driving at like 40 kilometres an hour, like on a 100 zone. Yeah. So it really wasn't a good feeling for me. I, really, I you know, just, just really didn't like marijuana much at all. And, um, and then I, I, I flipped out on an acid trip once and didn't like that. And so I'd had some bad experience, which was, which was I believe, the grace of God. But then what happened is this, this drug was the thing that compensated for what I was lacking in my life. I was lacking confidence. I was lacking that, that, that sense of self-worth and stuff. And this, this amphetamines gave it to me. So I thought, man, I, I felt like 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I felt like, man, this is just the, the best. I could stay up all night. I'd come up with all these incredible philosophies, which later I thought were rubbish. But at the time, I thought they were great. I was so smart coming up with all these ideas and and stuff and uh but but it, it i thought man i can't keep having this drug it it i think it's going to be addictive you know and i really like it so you know I, I just thought and so my mate would ring me up and i'd say no no i can't have it you know like i don't want to have it and then he, he he'd persevere and then i'd have it again and you know it, it was like every month and then it turned into every couple of weeks and then it was every week and within a six-year time period it was it was every day every day i was using this drug and i was using about five hundred dollars worth of amphetamines every day just to function so it built up to that so there was a point where i actually worked two jobs i I worked a four-hour job at this convention center um, and an eight-hour job at the casino in brisbane to support my drug habit. So the eight-hour job at the casino would support my mortgage and my normal life, and then the four-hour job over the, over the convention centre would, would support my, uh, my drug habit, you know. And, but after a while, I mean, you know, that's not sustainable, and, uh, and I would just be taking more and more time off and, and, and running out of excuses. My favourite one was glandular fever because it's recurring. I keep using that one. But uh, my boss was on to me, and, and, you know, and, uh, and then I, I thought to myself, a few of my friends had become drug dealers, and, and they seemed to be doing all right. So I thought, I might become a drug dealer. I remember having this conscious decision, I'm going to be a drug dealer. Because it was the only way that I could continue to support this habit and continue to, to take this drug. And little bit by little bit, one life slipped away and the other life began to take over. So I started dealing drugs. I would, uh, uh, first time I'd, I'd, I'd bought um, uh, an amount of this drug and started to, to work out how to deal it, cut it and deal it and deal it out to different people. And, and, and then I went and, you know, made a little bit of money and I went back and, and I, I got my own personal drugs out of it. So I went back and did it again. But after a while, 
I, I, I was really a bad drug dealer because I, I would share it with all my friends and, and <laughs> I was always, always very generous even with drug dealing and uh, I'll share it with all my friends and then there would be people ripping me off left, right and centre and I'd be like chasing after this person for that and this person for that. Meanwhile, my drug dealer's chasing after me because I continued to get more and more credit, more and more credit off my drug dealer. I thought, no, no, this time's going to be different. And then I'd get the drugs and then it, the, the drugs would be gone, the money would be gone and I'd be sitting there at the end of the day just owing money to my drug dealer. I remember one time I had this great bright idea. I'd, I'd sold a couple of packets and I had, I, I had owed my drug dealer $800 but I had $200. I thought, I'm just going to go to the casino and put it on black. Bad idea, lost it all then. Anyway, it turned out, it got to a point where I owed the drug dealer $10,000. So he came around to collect and, um, and he bought this big thug looking dude. But I mean, I could fight. That's, a, that's the one thing that I always had is that I could fight. And, uh, you know, I, I'd put so much life and energy and time into martial arts that, that I, I didn't care, but he came around and he, he, but he didn't come around to collect first. He came around to ask me some questions and he said, listen, you owe me $10,000. What are you going to do to pay back the money? And I said, man, I, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm hopelessly addicted to the drug. I showed him my arms. They were like Swiss cheese. I was like a pin cushion because I was injecting the drug. I was mainlining the drug. I'd, a lot of my veins had collapsed in my arm. I, I got to a point where I was, I used to try and inject in my neck to get a bigger rush. I know it's graphic, but you know, that's the life of a drug addict. There's always more. There's never enough. Got to get more. You know, there's a scripture that says Sheol or Hades cries out more. It never says enough. It always cries out more. The nature of the flesh is always more, 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 more. And when you're addicted to the drug, it's always more. I've got to get a higher rush because no one ever told me that I would never get that high. This, that's what they call chasing the dragon. Never get that first high ever again. No one ever gave me a little black book about drug addiction and said, by the way, there's this thing called tolerance that you're going to build up tolerance and you're going to need more and more of the same drug to get the same effect. But that's what happened. I didn't start out in my life thinking, I'm going to be a drug dealer. But that's what happened. And so my dealer comes around, collect, and I said, no, I can't pay you. And he said, he said, listen, I've got an idea. He said, I've heard about your reputation and I want you to come and work for me and you can pay off your debt and then I'll give you drugs and I'll give you whatever you need. And... The reputation he was talking about, I'd had a couple of impressive street fights, right? One of the street fights where this big bouncer guy was coming at me and I did a roundhouse kick and kicked him in the head, knocked him out. And then there was uh, down in, in the valley in Brisbane, I kicked this other guy and he went through a plate glass window in the front of a nightclub. And there was all these witnesses and the story got better and better and better every time it got told. So by the time it got back to my drug dealer, it was like a Jackie Chan movie. So he'd heard this reputation. I didn't correct him. 
I just thought, yeah, let him believe what he wants to believe. If it's going to get me a job and going to get me out of debt, and you know, so, so I went and worked for this drug dealer. His name was Aldo. Aldo's a pretty classic drug dealer name. Anyway, so, so anyway, I, I was doing these collections, and they're called home invasions, where he would give me an address, he would give me drugs, give me money give me women, whatever, anything, part of the lifestyle, anything I needed. And he'd give me an address and I would go around and see home invasions. They're not like, they're not like, let's just say hi. Let's just, or let's just break in and, and do something. We actually knock on the door at strategic psychological times of the day or night when people are most vulnerable, knock on the door and then barge in and wreak absolute terror on the people that are in the home. That's, that's the psychology of a home invasion. It's, um, and you get them off guard and I used to carry around throwing knives and I used to carry around nunchucks and, um, and if, they, if they ran, I would put a throwing knife in their leg and uh and and other things that i used to do that were not pretty and not nice and i hurt people and i said yeah, i need the money or i take the stereo equipment i take whatever i could to look after aldo and then he would give me the drugs and i started to pay him off it got to the point where i was like i would i really knew i'd become this other person I got angrier and angrier and angrier. I was this angry, angry man. Like, I'm always angry. I, I, who, who's been watching My Kitchen Rules? You know what they call about angry, angry? He's no idea, angry man. He's not an angry man. I was angry. I used to walk up, walk up the street like this. I would, I remember one time... I was in, in the valley in Chinatown and I'm walking up the street like this and people are peeling left and right and, and the coppers come and tackle me to the ground because they thought I was going to just go and bash someone but I was just actually really thirsty. I was looking for a drink. But that's how I used to always come across, you know. Just angry all the time. And, and I would have, you know, I would inject speed in the morning just to get up out of bed to function. And then I would have a bag of cocaine and I'd be dipping that. And then I'd be having a handful of Ekkies to have a good time. It was just this cocktail. And at the end of it, then all I could have was heroin to shut my head up. Because my head was just so manic and psychotic absolutely psychotic i remember one time I, I i was i moved in with this this is when i was drug dealing right so i moved in with this this guy who was a um who was an ecstasy dealer and i was a speed dealer we thought it was a great business part, partnership right so we moved in together and um and then i was out dealing drugs and god only knows what i did like that just be a big blur be five nights 
no sleep, no food and everything. And after five nights, just collapsed for like three days. Just sleep for like three days. Anyway, I remember this time when like it was been three days I'd been in bed, woke up out of my coma and, and rolled out of bed. And all I could think about was this half a tub of yogurt that I'd had in the fridge. Come on, how many know you've been up five nights, you haven't eaten. There's another three days you've been sleeping. You're pretty hungry at the end of it, right? But we didn't have any food in the house. There's never any food in the house, but I knew I had that half a tub of yogurt. So I was pretty excited about that half a tub of yogurt. I got out of bed and I walked up the hallway and out of my peripheral vision to the right, I just saw bodies sprawled everywhere and, 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 and bongs and needles and cans. And it was just, it was a junky carnage over there. But I tried to ignore that because all I wanted was my yogurt. So I, I just, yep, yeah, no, we'll f- pretend that's not there. Went to the fridge, opened it up, saw my yogurt there. Pulled out the tub, empty. Oh, I lost it. Oh, I lost it. So I went back to my room, grabbed my throwing knives, walked back out in the kitchen, grabbed one of the throwing knives and threw it at this junkie's head and it like landed right, right next to his ear pinned in the wall and then I turned around and roundhouse kicked the freezer door and caved the whole freezer door I had everyone's attention at that point I said who ate my yogurt who ate my yogurt of course none of them owned up to it but I I share that story to share how psychotic I was just crazy the lifestyle I was in it was just absolutely nuts not to mention the road rage episodes that I would get involved in (laughs) but I I got to the point where I actually got sick and tired of being sick and tired I actually got to this this place where I went no this is not me and I, I rang my parents and said listen um and they haven't seen me for a while but I, I'm actually, I've got a drug problem and I want to come home and all I need is a bit of dry time at home and I'll be okay. And so dad said no, mum said yes. So, um, And then I moved back home, but I just continued the whole cycle at home. Next thing, I'm dealing drugs out of my parents' house. I'm stealing from them. I'm just crazy, crazy stuff. I reached out to my sister in America and I said, I said, listen, don't freak out, but I'm a drug addict and I can't, I can't give up the stuff, but don't worry about it, I'll be okay. She did freak out and she, she went and she paid $10,000 of her own money to go and uh, pay for the advice of what's called an interventionist. Uh, For those that don't know what an intervention is, an addict or alcoholic intervention is like a surprise party for the addict and the addict knows nothing about it. Where all the friends and family come to the house 
and confront the drug addict about the drug use. So my sister actually flew back. I didn't even know. I didn't know what she's coming for or anything. All of a sudden she's here. And then, and then they'd planned this thing while I was out doing my business and running around in ever-diminishing circles. And they planned this intervention thing. And what happened is I got back to the house and there's all these people there. There was like my friend from, from childhood over here, my, ex, my ex-girlfriend, I don't know what she's doing here. Like there, there was even a, a pastor there and there was all these family and loved ones and they said, sit down, we just want to confront you and tell you this is called an intervention we're going to tell you about. We, we can't stand by and watch you kill yourself. I want to tell you about how much we love you, but we want to see you get into treatment. And I just, I lost it. I'm like, you kidding me? I don't have a problem. I've got this thing under control. I heard someone say denial stands for don't even know I'm lying to myself. And so I'm like, no, I don't have a problem. I lost it. I was angry. I, I left. I walked up the street. Now, my auntie was a spirit-filled Christian. She was this, she was the, the fruity, spirit-filled, Pentecostal, happy, clappy auntie that you stayed well clear of. Right? She always wanted to lay hands on you or do something or give you some Christian book or tract or anything you know, like that. We, we just, as kids, we stayed well clear of her. She's just something not quite right with her. But what was happening while the intervention was taking place, there was another intervention taking place. It was called the spiritual intervention where my auntie had got all the prayer warriors around and they were praying for me for this intervention. So anyway, I lost it. I was angry, tipped the tables up, chairs up. I walked out, walked down and I said, nah, you can forget about it. My mum said, if you walk out that door, you don't come back. We don't have a son anymore. Because that's what they, they, were, taught, they were taught. that They had to do that for the intervention. They had to, the intervention be effective, they had to actually cut me off. Couldn't continue to enable me and provide a roof over my head while I'm doing all this stuff. We don't have a son anymore. And so I had to go. And so I, I, I just said, well, that's it. Well, I don't care. I don't need any of this. And I walked up the street and it was like I hit a brick wall in the spirit. <laughs> I, it was like I literally walked into this imaginary wall and fell on my knees. And started swearing and crying out, going, what the, what the heck? Oh, I'll go back and see what the rest they have to say. Before I knew it, I was going back. I didn't even know I was going back. I sat in the room. I'm listening to them. They're sharing with me about, oh, you know, we just love you. And they're showing me pictures of me when I was a kid. I'm like, Pfft. yeah, well, this, it's like, a, it's like a wake. But you're not dead yet. And they get to the end of their big spiel and everyone speaks. And, and then they said, right, well, we need you to go into detox tonight. We've prepared it. 
we've we've rung the plate they've got a bed available for you and the car's full of petrol down the road and they've got this bag packed in there oh that's a bit presumptuous isn't it they said no nah, you either do this or say goodbye to your family I thought, oh, how can I get myself out of this? I just, all I could think of. So I tried to manipulate mum. Mum, come on, mum. You know me. Son, just let me stay one more night. And my sister goes, now. He's got to go now. And I went, all right. Fine, fine. So I went into this detox unit, right? And God knows I needed it because when I started to come down off the drugs, my mouth was like I'd been chewing on barbed wire from the cocaine that I was using. And you know, it all goes numb and you think you're chewing gum, but you're actually chewing the side of your mouth. My throat was blistered all the way up inside of my throat from shooting up pure crystal meth. I was about 73 kilos six foot three I was a sick boy and I went into the rehab and into this detox and as soon as I started to get my energy back I had these incredible anxiety levels and I just started to lose it I used to like I set up my own little dojo out the back of this detox center with like these milk bottles hanging off the trees and stuff and full of water and I was like kick them and smash them and kick the trees and everything and and they, I, they, they've made a nickname for me. They called, called me Mad Mick in the detox because I was just mad. I was just, just, just ah, anxiety plus. And so I spent 10 days in there to detox because, and then, and then um, my family came and picked me up and then took me to this rehab program. Now, this rehab program was a, was a 12-month live-in program and it was a you know, residential program with about 40 other addicts. So now I'm sitting in a group, instead of my family confronting me, I've got 40 other drug addicts confronting me. That made me even angrier. I thought, what do you all know? Because they, they, always, you know, I'm the new kid on the block that confronting about my behavior. Oh, your body language is aggressive. Oh, you, you're this, you're that. Or you're not listening, you you're arrogant, you're this, you're that. I'm like, I'm like what all you know? So I, I just thought, man, I'm just going to get through this as best I can. Six weeks, and then I'm going to go, and I'm going to say to the family, look, I'm all fixed. I'm cool. I'm going to go back and do what I was doing before. And I said to this guy, I said, yeah, no, I'm still going to take drugs. He said, well, what are you doing in here? I said, you know, look, I'm just, it's, it's, it's a cover. And... Uh, and I said, I just won't inject anymore because that's probably bad. I'll just snort it. And, and, and he goes to me, he goes, well, if you have a Porsche and Holden parked in the driveway and you've got the keys to both, which one are you going to drive? I drive the Porsche, man. He goes, so how long do you reckon it's going to take you till you go straight back to where you were with the needle? Just all this logic makes me sick. Anyway, so, but I thought six weeks, I'm going to get through this. It's going to be okay. I'll get through it. 
and I got to six, the, nearly the six-week mark. I thought, oh, man, I've, I've got, got this covered, and then I'm going to leave, and it's going to be all cool. And, and, and I got close to that, and, and what happened is I, I walked past the, they used to have this little coffee area, and there was a cigarette line on the counter. So I thought, oh, that's nobody's. I'll just smoke it, right? So I went outside and smoking this cigarette, and then they, they, they all yell out in the house. They go, community group. And our community group was where they wanted to confront someone, right? So I thought, oh, well, yeah, okay. Put the cigarette out, went inside, sat in the group. And they're like, somebody here has broken a cardinal rule. I thought, oh, I wonder who that is. It's terrible. Next thing, this chick points right across the room. He says, you, Michael Barrett. You stole a cigarette off somebody. I said, you're kidding. You are tripping, lady. That cigarette was just sitting on the counter. No, someone left it there. They were going to come back for it. You stole it. But I tell you what, we're going to have compassion on you today. Normally, you'd have to be discharged from the program. You'd have to leave the program. But what we're going to do is we're going to do this thing called discharge, readmit, so we're going to discharge you and readmit you the same day so that you can do the whole program all over again. I lost it. I thought, what the? Here I am nearly finished. I thought, at least if they kicked me out, it's their fault. But I went up into the room and I just went nuts. I'm punching and kicking and kneeing and elbowing my, my wardrobe and split it into firewood. Then I grabbed my clothes out of the rubble, chucked them in my bag, and there was like about three guys out in the hallway and they're going, no, you go in. You go in. No, I'm going, you go in. <laughs> anyway, one of the guys goes, oh, I'll go in. He goes, hey, mate. I said, what, what do you want? Used a couple more expletive words I can't use in church. And uh, I said, what do you want? And, and he, goes, he goes, mate, what are you doing? I said, I'm packing my bags. I'm out of here. And he goes, he said these words, right? And it's funny, like, I see God back even and then working in the main trigger that was going to get me to stay. I, so he comes in and he goes, are you going to let them win? I said, what? What do you mean, let them win? I'm winning. He goes, nah, you're letting them win. I said, no, nah, I win. If, if you leave, they win. Nah, pull me clothes out. Put me. <laughs> I'm staying. They're not going to win. Appeal to my ego. I used to hate losing. So, so I stayed and, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this rehab, I'm going to do it properly. It was a turning point for me. I went, you know what? Because I, like I thought, well, this is it. I'll do it properly. I'll finish the whole program. So I stayed there for another nine months and I was there and, and, and finished the whole program. And I was, I was like the model resident in there. I was always polarized opposite. I was either the, the perfect little good boy that trying to make everybody happy 
or I was the, the rebel because I couldn't make everybody happy. Are you hearing me? Like, I, because I, I couldn't keep all the people happy with me all the time. I was trying to, so, but I, I, I thought I'll make, I'll make all the staff happy. I'll, I'll get the gold star. And, 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 and they, used to, they used to call me Sergeant Make Your Wear. And, uh, and I became this Sergeant Make Your Wear. Anyway, I finished the program. I left the program and I went into this halfway house system and, and, uh, and I was hanging on by my fingertips not to use my drug of choice. I was like, what do we do now? What do we do now now that I've finished the rehab and I've got no purpose? Like at least I had purpose in the rehab. I was helping people and I was, I was in that rehab. I felt like I meant something and now I'm out in the big world. I, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. And so I started drinking alcohol and then I got kicked out of the halfway house. And then I was holding on my, by my, by my literally by my fingertips. And I thought, I, I do not, I've done so much clean time, I don't want to go back to my drug of choice. So I started doing 12-step meetings. I went to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to Narcotics Anonymous. And I saw the 12 steps as a pathway to God. I thought, that just looks like, to me, a pathway to God. And, you know, me being the arrogant so-and-so still, I wasn't going to get a sponsor and do it all their way. I'll do it my way, right? So I thought, I'm going to go search for God. So I went on the search for God. Now, there was a few of the people from the 12-step meetings going to Hare Krishna, so I thought I'll give that a crack. So I used to go down to Hare Krishna's and have a little boogie and a free veggie meal with them. But it just didn't do it for me. I'm like, they're real happy, nice people and... Having a dance and chanting and everything, and I seem real happy and that, and but, but just didn't do it for me. And I said, "Look, guys, really nice, happy people, but I need a real God. I need, I need something real. So, see ya, and go look for God." So the Eastern religions always appeal to me a bit more because of the martial arts and stuff. So I thought I'll, I'll be a Buddhist. So I went to Buddhist temple, my shoes off, went in there, and got the blessing and tried to meditate. I got way too much ADD to meditate. I just, my brain would be going, while I'm trying to meditate. This doesn't work for me. This made me frustrated. So I left that. Next thing I tried was crystals. Because, you know, they're, they're all into crystals. And they said, just carry around this little pink crystal in your pocket and you'll have peace. Ah, it's just a rock. Doesn't work. And then a friend of mine, he said, why don't you come to church, man? I said, what for? He goes, you're looking for God, aren't you? I said, God's not in church. I've been to church. God's not in church. And he goes, no, no, no. No, it's different. It's different. It's, you, you like it. Come along. I thought, oh, well, what can church do to me? Went along. Stood up the back of the church. Went in like this. And I stood up back like this. And it was a Pentecostal church in the midst of a revival. 
And there's all these people raising their hands and clapping and dancing and all sorts of stuff. And I look around, I'm just thinking, geez, they're freaks. Look at them. I thought, then I had this thought, I thought, they're all really, really happy. No one could all be that happy and not be on something. Maybe they're putting some through the air conditioners or something. Then we had this, the overzealous greeter guy, Larry. He come up, he come up and he goes, Hi! Welcome to Service Paradise Assembly of God! And I went, Larry, that's what your name tag says. Sure you're just doing your job, but if you ever approach me again, I'm going to smash you right in the face. Okay then. I didn't want to know anybody. I didn't, I didn't want to make friends. I certainly didn't want to become one of them. Right? And I'm just, I'm just there to find out if God's real. Is God real? Is this God they talk about, this God of the Bible, this God of Christianity, is He real? Because I need God. If God's going to help me, to have peace in my life. If God's going to help me to, to, to stay clean, then I need God. So I'm going to stay and see if this is real and I'll, I'll, I'll give it the same measure of persistence I gave the other things. And I came to church and after I'd been to church, my week was better. I couldn't explain it. I had no reference. Po- I, just, I, just, I knew my week was better. I, my, I was always assessing my levels of peace. I left as a blessing. What was happening in my life? After I'd been to church, my week was better. Markably better. So I thought, process of elimination, what have I done? Okay, been to church, all right, I'll go back to church. Purely for selfish reasons. It's working for me. Go back to church. And week after week, I would stand up the back like this. Making sure everybody got the message not to come near me. I'd leave before it was all said and done. But my week was good after being to church. People go, people say to me, you going to church, man? Have you become one of them Christians? I go, no. I certainly have not. But, my week's better after I've been there, so it's good. So I kept going. And then one day, I, I think I've been going for a couple of months, and one day something different happened. I was standing in the service in my usual posture, and I felt this mad feeling go from the top of my head down to the soles of my feet. It was the weirdest thing. It was like this rush of the best way I could describe it was like this rush of liquid love. Just went <laughs> right down. It was like I stand in a pool of it. And I just went, wow. What was that? It was like someone had standing behind me and sprinkled it on me or something. I looked around and I nudged the guy beside me and I said, did you feel that? 
Because I figured everyone must have felt it. I said, did you feel that? And he goes, feel what? And I described the feeling to him. The goosebumps, the warmth, the feeling. He goes, oh, that's the Holy Spirit, man. I went, how do I get more of this Holy Spirit? <laughs> me being the drug addict I was, I just wanted more. <laughs> Give me more. How do I get more? So I thought, then I started looking around at him. And I'm thinking, maybe if you do this, you get it. Maybe if you do this, you get it. I give up. I'd just go back to my normals and then I'd get hit with another wave of it. Another rush. Oh. How, do, how do I get it? I said, how do I work it out? Anyway, that morning, sat down and the preacher, I'd always just switch off, go to sleep during the preaching. But it got to the end part and usually the end part, I'd be out of there before, you know, can we just have the keyboard back up? And I'd, I'd, I'd be gone by that time. I'd be, whew, just in case someone decided to leave early too. And then they start talking to me. So, uh, But this star stayed. And, and this, this preacher starts to say, well, if you would like to have your sins forgiven today, if you would like to receive the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you'd like to, and as he's saying this, there's this dialogue going on on the inside of me. I can feel my heart starting to beat out of my chest. It's like pounding away and I'm going, whoa, what's it? And then I can feel my heart, in, like this voice inside me saying, this is what we've been looking for all our life. This is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been looking for. And, and then my head would go, no, don't do it. You'll be an idiot. You'll become one of them. Just look at them. Then I'd look around at you all and I'd go, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> then my heart would be going, no, no, this is what we need. This is it. This is it. This is what we, you've been searching for. This is it. My head would go, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Become one of them. Heart going, yes. Head going, no. I felt like a schizophrenic. I'm like, but I tell you, like, my heart drew me up to the altar up to the front before my head could talk me out of it I was like on autopilot <laughs> and I fell on my knees right up at the altar I fell on my knees and, and, and it was like the dam burst and I just these cry, just tears started coming pouring out of my face and I'm snotting tears flowing and, and the guy he hadn't even finished what he, he's walking out. He hadn't finished what he's saying. And so he come over and he goes, "Mate, are you all right?" Up <laughs> <laughs> the back and this stuff. Come on, here and I didn't even want to come on. <laughs> Pulled myself together and I went, "Oh, yeah. I got no idea what just happened." But they, they, they said they led, led us all over to this little area over on the side and there was this little bloke come along and he's, he said, well, now that you've become a Christian, I said, what? 
How'd you trick me into that? <laughs> no, I've become a Christian, man. I don't want to join your little crew and club here. Not my thing. I just tell me something. How do I get more of that stuff? See, what stuff? I said, look, I said it was the Holy Spirit. I felt this stuff come on me like up the back. It was like I couldn't see it, but I could feel it all over me. Like, How do we get more of that? He goes, oh, I don't know, mate. Look, don't mind my heart, job hard. Could you just fill out the form and then I'll give you a Bible and then we can be done. And, and, and no one could tell me anything. How do you get more? How do you get? Anyway, I'd come week after week trying to work out how you get it. And then I'd get little sprinkles and waves and stuff. And, and after a while, I worked out, I put two and two together, I worked out when you play the church music, the stuff comes. Worked it out. Church music, stuff comes. So I bought a little CD, a little worship CD from the church, and I thought, cool. I took it home and I put it in my little CD player, shut the lid and push play, lay back on the floor, and I was getting wave after wave after wave of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, mad. I've got the stuff on tap now. And it's free. This is awesome. And then I immediately thought, everybody needs to feel this stuff. Everybody does. Every drug addict, every drug dealer, every gang member, every prostitute, every homeless person. I started thinking, I've got, I've got to get out and get, get them some of this stuff. And... and because when I was a drug dealer, see, I didn't think I was doing a bad thing. I thought, I, I, I enjoy taking them, so you must too, right? So when I became addicted to this Holy Spirit stuff, I thought, yeah, I've got to deal this Holy Spirit stuff now. So me and my flatmate, we got these little cards printed up. And, and on one side, it had like the address and the time. We have like Tuesday night, come around 7 p.m. On the other side, it, it had, um, we have stuff you know not of. So, so we, we started handing them out in the streets and I was still volunteering at that rehab so I started handing them out in there and, 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 and it was like a real, in the rehab it was like a real secret thing. You know, give us a little blanket. Passing around these cards because they think in the air, this is our chance, you know. And, 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 and we go to the people in the street, you know, sitting down, smoking bongs or drinking beer or something. Oh, we, we go, yeah, man, you don't want that stuff. We got better stuff than you. Here, come around here. Anyway, so the first night, I think we must have had about 15 the first night, right? So what happened is my flatmate standing at the door. I dimmed the lights, had my CD player ready there. And then, and then everybody's coming in and, and, and they say, well, Where's the stuff, man? We'll just have a seat. We're waiting for a few more people. And, um, and my flatmate waited at the door there and I was coming in. When we thought everyone had come and we shut the door. And I, remember, I remember this big guy, he, he goes, where's the stuff, man? We haven't got all night. And I said, well, just, just wait, man. Just wait, wait. And, and, and then he goes, look, I need the stuff. And I, I said, all right, all right, we're ready now. Ready now. Dim the lights, get ready. I said, you want the stuff? He goes, yeah, I want stuff. And, and I said, shut your eyes and hold out your hands. Is he for real? I thought I've got to be a bit more forceful here. 
You want the stuff, don't you? Shut your oars and hold out your hands. Oh, okay, fair enough. Then I'll push play on the CD player, shut my eyes and hope for the best. <laughs> Madly praying in my mind going, God, touch him with the same stuff you touched me with. Come on, come on, God. Pour that Holy Spirit stuff out. Get on him, get him, get him, get him, God, get him. And, and then I, I, after a while, I, I had my eyes just to see what was going on. I was a bit scared to see what was going on before. I looked around, and to my amazement, everyone in the room was getting plastered in the Holy Spirit. They were getting hit and touched, tears rolling down their cheeks as the presence and the power of Almighty God came into that room and touched every soul, every hungry heart. And we just had having these meet, weekly meetings. And what happened is these guys would tell their friends, right? And then I'd say, hey, there's more stuff at the church. <laughs> so, so a couple of them said, oh, maybe it's better at the church. We could go to the church and it might be more pure or something. <laughs> it's our drug, drug addicts. You know, we get closer to the source, it gets more pure. It's not diluted. And, anyway, so... So week after week, we had these meetings and just it was a glorious time. One time, and, and it got to a point where I had about 30 people in my lounge room. And it was like just the presence, the thick presence of God, the atmosphere of heaven invading the room. It was a sovereign, sovereign time. I'd wake up and things would be missing, stolen, gone. But I didn't care. I was just so much in this glory cloud of the presence of God. And one guy even paid a prostitute for an hour. Paid her for the hour, took it to the meeting. And she got touched, got touched powerfully, broke down in tears, told us the story of how her father had been abusing her. That's why she became a prostitute. And, um, and then I thought, man, we've... We've got to get some kind of structure around this because what happened is they get touched by the power of God but then they go back to their, their junkie houses or the street or the brothels or wherever they came from and that atmosphere would engulf them again. So I went to my pastor and I said, can I rent the little house next door to the church so that I can set up a little program and get them in there? And he said, he said it can't cost us any money because we're broke. See, what had happened is this, this, this had been going on for a, a, like about a, a five, six-month period. I got, I got born again. This was around about a six-month period. And I started the Transformations Rehab Discipleship Program a year after I'd found Christ because there was just such a need. We started in the one house. It exploded. And we had five houses before we knew it. And I was working full time and and I did I, I decided I should do Bible college probably. And um so I did Bible college, work full time and run this transformations program. Just juggling it all. And then after ten years down the track, ten years so this was in nineteen ninety nine, we started to see these 
people coming out of it just incredibly transformed by the power of God. Incredibly transformed. Guys going into the ministry. Guys becoming missionaries. And, and we started women's program. And girls were going and, and, and changing their world as well. And it was just incredible what was happening. And after 10 years from 1999 to 2009, when 10 year anniversary, we contacted all the people that graduated our program. We found that we'd had a 75% success rate of those who'd finished our program. Three out of four never ever went back. Not only did they never go back, but they were in church and they were, they were having productive lives. They were running their own businesses. They were doing all sorts of incredible stuff and they were happy and they were healthy and they were conquering in life. And then God spoke to me. I started to hear God's voice really, really clear. God would just speak to me clearly like I'm talking to you. It was like just I'd walk down the road. God was just my friend. I'd just walk down. I'd go, oh, yeah, God, what do you want? Yeah, okay, what are we doing? Yeah, all right, let's do that. And um, God spoke to me and said, uh, I don't want addition, son. I want multiplication. I want you to give this away to churches. He said, I didn't come to build a rehab. I came build my church and I've put a tool in your hand to put in the hands of the churches so they can have real and lasting results with drug addicts and alcoholics and so that's what we've done now we've got um, programs in Harvey Bay, Brisbane um, Melbourne Bendigo, Gold Coast Hobart, Tasmania we're about to start in Auckland about to start in Texas so that's another thing that God has been doing me too just taking me to the worst of the worst places I'm a patch member of a motorcycle club called God Squad and I go into outlaw clubhouses and see like the incredible favor of God just I've seen two major sergeant at arms in the last couple of years two major sergeant at arms of motorcycle clubs come to the Lord not just the minions, but the actual heads of it. Now, now God's got me going into Mexico. I'm going to be doing a crusade in Mexico. Last year, I was in this place called um, Reynosa, and it's where it's on the border of Texas and Mexico, but it's in Mexico, and it's where all of the Mexican drug cartel are there, and I'm. I'm going down there and God's just led me into the situation where I'm, I'm going across the border from the US into Mexico and the evangelist says to me, you go in here at your own risk, you understand that, don't you? That the latest thing that the drug cartel do in Mexico now, it's not drug dealing, it's extortion and kidnapping. And it, there's more money in that. So they, they cut off body parts and send them back to the families until they pay. And... Um, and he said, last time we were here, we did a, a big crusade and there was a big tent crusade. And, and when we started the crusade, six guys got out of the back of a big black fall drive and uh, they had all had punch, ponchos on and they were actually cartel soldiers. And um, they, they had, all had their hands underneath their ponchos and they were just standing around the, the tent meeting and that, the, the evangelists just kept going and ran the tent meeting and all these people got saved and delivered and set free and then and then the um the, the these cartel soldiers just got back in their truck and left so there the whole meeting heard the gospel 
standing around. Then they got in the and left. The next day, the head of that cartel went down to see the local pastor, put his pistol on the, on the desk and said, I don't know what kind of power you've got, but I sent my soldiers there to kill you. They had their hands underneath their ponchos and they couldn't, they had their hands on machine guns, Uzis. They couldn't lift them out from under their ponchos. They couldn't move them. Don't know what kind of power it is, but it's a power greater than us and we surrender. Gave his heart to Jesus. Crazy, crazy stuff. We're going to be doing some crusades in Pakistan, right? Where they're just killing Christians everywhere. And so that's, that's the next step. And I was, I was meant to go to Uganda this year, but um, that got cancelled. But, but God is doing amazing stuff all over the world. And God can do it in anybody. God can use me. He can definitely use you. And uh, I just want to take a moment now. Um, and if we could get just the keyboardist back up. Now it's cliche. Just play a little bit of music. Don't really need it. We don't really need it. But I do, I do want to say this. I want to give an opportunity for people to know God like I do. See, I, I thought that you had to be like one of them stereotype Christians, you know? How many know I don't fit the box? And never have, and never will, and that's okay. Because God uses me exactly the way I am and uses the story and the testimony of my life to change people's lives all over the world. God wants to use you. He wants to give you a purpose way beyond yourself. Because it's only when you begin to look beyond yourself that you find your true purpose in life. When you're always thinking about self, 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 it's a bottomless pit. But when you find your purpose in God, the God of the universe, the God who one day is going to come back and judge all the nations and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you say it now or you say it on that day, you will say it, mark my words. Jesus is real, He's the Son of God, and He is the only way to heaven. There is no other way. So you either accept Him tonight or you reject Him. It's as black and white as that. So while I give you an invitation tonight to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you have a choice to make. And it will be one or the other. I want to give you an invitation in a moment to receive Jesus into your heart, to have all of your sins washed away, as white as the driven snow. You say, I haven't sinned, Pastor Mike. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever looked at something that someone else had and thought, I want that? That's called coveting. The Bible says, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, Young men, and you committed adultery. Jesus up the ante on everything. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all need forgiveness and all need saving. And there was a man a little over 2,000 years ago that said, I will stand in their place. They deserve death, Dad, but I will stand in their place. 
Imagine you were on death row for something that you did. And someone stepped in and said, I'll take their place so that they can go free. That's what Jesus did for us. And tonight he wants to reach out to you. Tonight he wants you to feel the power of his love. The power of unconditional love. You'll never feel unconditional love other than from God. He's the only one that can give you pure love. Let's just bow our heads in prayer for a minute. Father, I just do thank you that it's by divine appointment that every person's here tonight. It's not by accident. It's by divine appointment. It's not even because they chose to be here. It's because you orchestrated, you led them here. And tonight, Father, I pray that you would reach into the heart of every man, woman and child in this place and draw them to yourself. Now I want to ask you, while every head's bowed and every eye closed right across this place, how many of you in this place, you say, I need Jesus. I need him. Tonight, I want to get right with him. If that's you and you want to invite Jesus into your heart, into your life, I'm going to ask you to put your right hand straight up in the air right now where I can see it. Right across this place. One, one up the back there, another one over here. Who else? Come on. Come on, I know there's more in this place. Just put your right hand straight up in the air. I'm not talking about a religious sense of knowing, just knowing about God. I'm talking about knowing Him. I'm talking about really knowing Him. Do you know that you're saved tonight? Do you know if you were to go out there and get hit by a truck, do you know that you know that you know that you would go directly to be in heaven with Jesus? Because if you're unsure, then tonight, friend, you need to put your hand up. Tonight is a night to get right with God. Come on. There's hands going up all over the place. If you feel a tugging on your heart, there's another hand up the back. Come on, you feel a tugging on your heart. Come on, friends. Let's go. Tonight is the night. Today is the day of salvation. Don't leave it till tomorrow. You know, I can give this invitation, but what is written on the bottom of every invitation? RSVP. And if you don't RSVP, you ain't going nowhere. So if that's you, you need to RSVP right now. Just put your right hand straight up in there. Maybe you were once a Christian, but you're backslidden. You know you're not right with God tonight. You know, you know that you need to rededicate. You need to recommit. You once well more on fire than you are right now, and you need to recommit your life to Jesus. If that's you, put your hand up with these people right now. Come on, come on, come on, right across this place. God's speaking to you. God's speaking to you. Don't ignore him. Don't ignore him. Come on. Come on. God is standing at the door of your heart and knocking tonight saying, would you let me in? I'm going to close this off in three. Come on. If you know you need to do this, do it right now. Two. Another hand's gone up. One. Come on. Another hand over here. Awesome. 
Let's all stand to our feet. Let's all stand to our feet right now. I'm going to ask those people that put your hand up, I want you to do something for me because there's too many hands for me to go around and pray for everyone. I'm asking you if you would all come to the front right now, if you'd step out of your seat into the aisles and then you would come right now, would you come quickly? Just come up the front so I can pray with you and I can pray for you. If you put your right hand up in the air, come forward right now, please. Come forward. I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. You've got to stand for this. You've got to step out. Putting your hand up is not enough. You've got to step out. Jesus said, if, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Just bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. Whether you've done this once or a thousand times, but you know you need to do it tonight. You say, Pastor Mike, I didn't put my hand up, but I want to come right now. I can feel it, I can feel it, I can feel it. Is that you? Why don't you just step out of your seat and come right now? I feel it, I feel it. There's someone else here and you, you know you need to come. Awesome. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Come on. Come on. Tonight's the night. Tonight's the night to make it right. Come on. Here he is. I was waiting for you, brother. Awesome. Awesome. Another one over here. It's a couple more seconds. You see, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men sometimes the fish put up more of a fight on the end of the line got to give it a little bit more time they're the big fish that come in amen hallelujah anyone else anyone else come on if you've had a bit of a wrestle and you just know you got to do this do it quickly 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 now Quickly now. Good on you, my bro. Good on you. Well done. Don't worry about the person beside you. You'll have to stand before God yourself. Anyone else? All right. We're going to close this altar call off. And I'm going to ask every single one of you, look up at me. Every single one of you, I want you to pray this sincerely with all of your heart. This is between you and God and something supernatural will happen. I tell you literally, when I, when I, I recognized that I was saved, the, the sky got bluer and the grass got greener. Everything became better. You're going to get saved tonight. You're going to know Jesus. He's going to know you. You'll call upon Him. He'll answer you. It's real. I want you to just pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, everybody, with your mouth. Come on, let's help them. All, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Lord, I am so sorry that I turned my own way and did my own thing. Tonight, Lord, I turn my heart to you turn my back on the world I'm asking you to forgive me come into my heart cleanse me wash me make me brand new
by your precious blood. Lord, in front of all these people tonight, I confess you as my Lord and as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wonderful. 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 So we have uh, someone here just wants to help you over here. If you could all follow James over this way, just make one line and just follow him out the back there. Whether you've done this before, it doesn't matter or not. We just want to make sure that you're looked after and this Christian walk starts to really become real for you. Awesome. Good stuff, guys. Just follow them through. Good stuff. Praise God. Is God good? Now, I'm an evangelist, right? So tomorrow morning we have church here. And I'm going to preach a word for Christians. But every sermon I ever preach, I go after the lost. And so you have an opportunity to bring your friends, your friends' friends, people you don't know, people you run into in the street to come and hear and to be saved. There is an anointing that is upon this ministry and upon my life to see sinners come to the cross and be saved. And so if you can think of anybody that needs to hear, needs to know God, then I encourage you to bring them along tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, I'm going to be speaking. We're going to have a great time. Going to begin and move a little bit in, in when, I, when I hear the voice of God and I hear certain things about people. Like I, I kid you not, I have heard, this is what happened recently. I was in a meeting and there was a lady up on the front line and she was asking for prayer for something. And I said, does the name Caroline mean anything to you? Because I heard the Holy Spirit say, Caroline. She began to weep and shake and she said, my sister's name is Caroline. She doesn't know the Lord, but she's standing up the back. I brought her along here tonight. I said, go and tell her that Jesus knows her name. She came forward and she got saved. Because God is real. And he says, my sheep hear me and they know my voice. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night. Hang out a bit. Talk to people. This is a great pastor here. Pastor Steve, come and talk to him. Get involved. God bless you.